people ask me sometimes, when do you think it will be enough? When will, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. On this episode, I'm joined by the legendary, groundbreaking, pioneering, award-winning, and beloved Nina Totenberg, the longtime legal affairs correspondent for NPR. Nina has covered the Supreme Court longer than any of the current justices have actually served on the court. Nina shares her perspective on the NCAA v. Alston case that will be decided any day or week now, her incredible career story, and her take on the shift in the Supreme Court. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Nina Totenberg. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm even a sports fan. <laughs> Let me ask you an important question to start. May I call you Nina? Absolutely. Okay. Miss Totenberg was my mother. <laughs> well, no, I was hoping maybe I would get a, a special nickname I could call you by, but I'll, but I'll stick with Nina. It is, I have to say, an honor to have you on. Thank I, you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, I, I want to thank you for being such an incredible role model to so many lawyers, to so many of my law students, to journalists, to broadcasters, men, women, children. They, you know, they often say, don't meet your heroes. This is the clear exception. And it, it really is wonderful to have you on. And given that this is a sports and the law podcast, I do want to hear your perspective on the NCAA Austin Supreme Court case. But before we get there, I also want to talk a little bit about your career and your views of the court more broadly. And my audience, at least the ones who are here more for the sports than the law, uh, likely know who you are, but probably haven't listened to every interview you've given like I have. So I, I want to share some of your story with them that they may not know. And I want to start with the idea that myself, my wife, again, my students, my peers, my colleagues, have had you and and Cokie Roberts and the other founding mothers of NPR as our role models. But you and a lot of your colleagues and Supreme Court justices had a much more limited list of role models uh, when you were growing up. And, and you have said many times that one of your key role models was Nancy Drew, fictional detective, who some say was America's first feminist, but can you talk about how and why she was your role model and, and so many other role models for Justice Sotomayor, for Justice Ginsburg, for O'Connor, for Hillary Clinton? It's just remarkable to me that so many amazing, powerful women all had the same fictional detective as their role Well, she was the only person we could look to who did everything. And she was unafraid. She would challenge anybody. She was a sleuth. She had not only that, she had a red roadster and a boyfriend named Ned, and she could jackknife off of a diving board. She could do everything. And I don't think we actually thought about this in any particular way. We were an audience of many for a heroine of one. And if you went to the library in those days and you were looking for a biography of a woman, a real life woman. There was a big series that was in the school library 
must have been 50 books, at least, maybe 100 books. And there were only two that I recall about women. And that was sort of, it was, there wasn't, there were no people to look to as role models. So we picked what was there and what was there was Nancy Drew. And Nancy Drew then inspired you in some ways to pursue your actual specific career as well? Is, is that fair or that was unrelated? That just came on its own. Well, I think I, if I had my brothers and I really thought I could be a detective, I might have become a detective, but that was simply not possible. There were no women detectives when I started out in the, in the professional world. And very early on, when I was about 16, I read The Making of the President, 1960, Teddy White's book about the Kennedy-Nixon campaign. And it, I immediately knew this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to run around the country and the world following the action, what was really going on, what was really important. But I really didn't feel like I was a cause person. This way, I could be a witness to history. And that's what I wanted to do. So I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Zootopia. I don't know if, I don't know if you've seen it. Mm. People say that I don't have current movie references. Zootopia is one of them because it's an uh, animated film, so my kids watch it. But the, the protagonist is a female bunny rabbit who wants to be a police officer and is told that she can't do it because she's a woman and a bunny. I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but it, it ends well. I'm going to go find Zootopia right away. Okay. It's a, yeah, I think, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, people say to me when I, was, when I was first out of college, we don't hire women, or we don't hire women for the night shift, or some other excuse. I mean, people just said those kinds of things in those days. I know that sounds really extraordinary, and it, but it never even occurred to me to say, it's illegal. And it was just illegal when I got out of college. It was just illegal. But it was illegal, but it never even occurred to me to fight back that way. Right. So you get your start for the record with the Record American in Boston. And this is for, again, particularly my students, um, they're not going to know what any of this means, that you were hired to for the women's page in the record American newspaper. My students barely know what a newspaper is, much less what the women's page is. So can you explain what, what a women's page was at the time? Well, in some newspapers today, the style, you call it the style section. It's sort of softer news. It's everything. It may not be, uh, it may be the arts. It may be politics, it may be profiles, that kind of thing. In those days, the women's page was recipes, essentially rewrites of fashion news releases by the fashion houses, and stories about the weddings that had taken place that week and what the design of the dress was and how many pearls it had on it and that kind of thing. It was deadly. <laughs> And how long, how long do you work on the women's page until you start to advance into the, the meatier, weightier subjects? I'm sorry to tell you folks, that's my hardline phone proving how old I really am or that people need a way to get hold of my, my trauma surgeon husband in case all 
you know, all, all the lights go out. So to speak. live podcasting. This is what it, this is what it sounds yeah. like. So, um, I, so I think I stayed at the Rapid American for about six months before I moved on, but I did do other things by volunteering. So I covered, I was the leg man for, on the school committee and which was embroiled in a nasty busing fight. So when the regular reporter would have to go back to the office to file, I would say, I'll stay and I'll call in any, any updates. And so I was what was known as the layman. And then I figured out that I could go with the photographer who would cruise around all night with all of the, um, all of the radios in his car. And he had the state police, the local police, the fire department, and we would go from one crisis to another. So you have you have to tell again because I, most people don't know this story because they haven't read every interview of you. But the one call you make in response to hearing about the bank robbery on the police scanner that is something out of, <laughs> out of an early Woody Allen movie or, or Naked Gun. So I was working by then. I was working for the Peabody Times in Peabody, Massachusetts, and I got a tip. It wasn't from the scanner. I think it was a tip saying there's there's a uh, there's been a a robbery at the local bank. So I just called up the local bank. It was a pretty small town. And I called the local bank and I said, hi, this is Nina Tuttenberg from the PPD Times. Um, I understand there's been a robbery there. And the guy says, yes. And I said, who is this? And he said, this is the robber. <laughs> <laughs> they, they ran away trailing cash behind them and were quickly apprehended. So you were, Nancy Drew come to life. Yes. Um, you mentioned when when you got out of college that it had just become illegal to discriminate against against women in, in the workplace. I want you to talk a little bit about, if you will, the idea that that today we're maybe starting to see more stories of maybe efforts to take away some of the rights of not only women but other people who've historically been underrepresented. And as you mentioned, it's not just the courts, it's not just the legislators, it's in college sports, and we're seeing this now with Title IX a bit, that men are being the oppressed minority, and this idea that women have to be vigilant. And I do think there is this sense, particularly a young among the younger women, that while it's great that they have opportunities, many more opportunities than you had when you were coming up, that they still need to be vigilant. Can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by the, the vigilance that may be needed today? Well, they do need to be vigilant. I mean, you should never take your rights for granted. We still are a minority in the workforce. We still don't populate the top of, of every kind of profession imaginable to the extent that men do. So even in an area like surgery, which traditionally was men, when I first married my husband, women were about 17% of surgeons, and that was in the early 2000s. Um, and then, by now, they're about half. But they are not in the same numbers. Chairmen, heads of departments, heads of hospitals, they are getting there, but they're not there yet. And you can see it backslide at individual institutions. So I was talking to a friend who is applying for a top surgical job in this country. 
And I've gotten to know her through the Old Boys Surgical Network and Old Girls Surgical Network. And I asked her why she's considering leaving. And she said, well, my department was, had five women surgeons in it. And it now, I'm now the only one left. And I've got a chairman who doesn't want to rock the boat and an immediate supervisor who's um, a pig. And, you know, these situations continue to happen. You don't have to go to the Me Too movement over this. You don't have to have a major discussion about sexual harassment. These are everyday meat and potatoes issues that happen to people when they are cleaning an office and when they're when they're cleaning a wound. I mean, it it happens all the time. So you gotta stay vigilant. The staying vigilant and and the the fact that women still do not have the representation in some of those more senior positions, given that you were in, in many ways the trailblazer, how did you have the confidence to to sort of fight all those battles and not, as you said, to fight the legal battle to say that you were being discriminated against in, in the workplace, but to be able to say, I'm going to take what I can get and, and climb the ladder as best as I can and become the most well-recognized, celebrated legal correspondent in the country when you had no formal legal training. As I understand it, you left college early. I did. And and then you become the foremost Supreme Court legal correspondent in, in the country. How, how does that, how did that happen? Well, you know, some of it is luck. <laughs> it really is. And timing over which we often don't have a lot of control. I, I, if I'd started 10 years earlier, I would have not, I think, gotten as far as I did. So, and I didn't have that much confidence. In fact, I was probably overly aggressive at times because I felt that was the only way people would have to deal with me and recognize me and remember me. And at the same time, I, I, I did bat my eyelashes at people on occasion, if that's what it required. Just batting the eyelashes. Um, you know, I famously said to a senator one day who I thought was really getting getting up the revving up to, and I quite liked him. I mean, and he was a good source. And he was sort of revving up to make a pass at me. I was pretty sure that. And I, whatever he said first, I said, oh, Senator, you remind me so much of my father. <laughs> Idea gone. <laughs> so you get no formal legal training, and you're then tasked with covering the Supreme Court. And yes. you uh, amazingly sort of took the, the lemons you had and, and not even made lemonade, you sort of made a lemon chiffon pie out of it and used the, the lack of training to your advantage. And, and there's just two stories that I love, if you wouldn't mind sharing about one reading a, a civil rights opinion that you didn't understand. It was a court of appeals opinion written by a man who may not be known to your students, but would certainly be known in the history of New Orleans and Louisiana, John Meyer Wisdom. And I just didn't understand it. I, I just didn't understand it. I didn't have enough background to understand it. So with all the, I don't know about confidence, but I probably didn't know enough to not call a judge and say, could you explain your opinion to me? <laughs> but that's exactly what I did. And he 
spend about a half hour explaining to me what the issues were, why they had come up this particular way, and why the court had reached the opinion that it did. And it was the beginning of a long first telephone relationship and then in-person relationship when I would go to, in those days, American Bar Association meetings would happen fairly regularly. And whenever I would go, I would, the first time I stopped in to see him, and then I would get in, then whenever he knew there was a bar meeting, I would get invited to dinner or something. And it was a fairly substantial dinner party at his house. And I met other judges at those dinners or at bar association meetings. And some of them were big John Minor Wisdom fans, and some of them were definitely not fans. And I didn't know it for a while. My students at Tulane do generally know who Judge Minor Wisdom is because he has a Tulane all and his name mm-hmm. is on the courthouse down the, oh, down yes, the street. And it is on the courthouse. That's the right. So he's, but you're right. Generally, they may not know of, of people in that era. And then if I have this right, he officiated your um, your first wedding. Is that yes, he did. He officiated it at my wedding to my late husband, Floyd Haskell, and did it, and came to Washington to do it. And it was in a church, but it was a civil ceremony, essentially. Right. right. And and he was wonderful. And uh, he and and Grisendale did not particularly love each other, but they were both people I covered for a long time and I had a lot of respect for and learned a lot from each of them. And Kofi Roberts and Linda Worthheim were my usherettes essentially at the wedding. And Bonnie Wisdom was sitting in one seat and Linda Worthheimer, who didn't know any of this background, but Kofi did, Linda started to seat Bonnie next to Judge Judge Bell and <laughs> Kofi, I was watching in a behind looking at looking through the, the crack in the door and Kofi just about levitated her out of her seat <laughs> put her in a different seat. Uh, just putting the pieces together a little bit here. When you wanted someone to officiate your wedding, you called them to ask them to help explain some legal writing because then in 1971, when you had questions about Reed versus Reed, you called the author. <laughs> well, you, but you've left out the fact that you get to know them for 20 years. Well, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm not saying <laughs> it's. you the, get to know them for 20 years, then you can ask them to officiate at your wedding. <laughs> but it also, it starts with that first phone call. That's what it all <laughs> It starts with that first phone call. And yeah. my first phone call to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I was assigned to cover the Supreme Court for the National Observer. And I was lucky that it was a weekly newspaper because it meant that I had time uh, to figure out what the court had done. I didn't have to do it on a, on a deadline of the moment. And so, uh, but I'm at the very beginning, I mean, I'm covering everything for the national, for the, for the national observer, but I am assigned to cover the Supreme court. And um, it's 1971 and this is the first case in which the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that it was a violation of the 14th Amendment equal protection right to give preference without any reason to male men as executives of an estate versus women as executives of an estate. In this case, both the divorced couple wanted to be executors of their late son's estate and 
the state of Idaho, I think, had an automatic preference for men. So I really didn't understand how can it be that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Guarantee applies to women since it was clearly enacted principally to benefit uh, the victims of slavery and black citizens and women didn't even have the vote in the 1800s. So I flipped to the front of the brief and it's written by a Rutgers law professor named Bruce Bader Ginsburg. And I call her up and I get an hour long lecture. The bottom line of which is basically that the 14th amendment says that uh, no person may be denied equal protection of the law. And she said, and women are persons. So, but I got a lot more than that. So my husband Floyd died in 1998. And a couple of years later, I married my wonderful husband, David. And by then, I, I knew Justice Ginsburg very well. And it's roughly 30 years later or so. And uh, and she officiated our wedding in Washington. So it, it did start with a phone call again. Nobody's ever drawn that line, Dave, but it is a really good one. Thank you. I'm proud of myself. And uh, I, I'm just saying to people who are listening, if you want somebody well-known to officiate your wedding, maybe just start with a phone call and then <laughs> 29 20 years, years later, 30 years yeah. later. Yeah, then maybe they'll officiate your wedding. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about the court now and how the court has changed in in the last several years. And you've said this is probably the most conser- conservative court since the 1930s and yeah. with, with the retirements of Souter and Stevens and this idea that we're not likely to have many surprises from the justices and that to the extent that there are surprises, Chief Justice Roberts has been criticized for crossing over in some of his decisions. But as you said, there's a really small number of, of cases. And so we're, we're at a, a pretty polarized point with the court. Is that fair to say that we're at a, a fairly polarized point? I, I think that's fair to say. I, I think that we've not had conservative justices. We've had one or two, just the way you've had one or two very liberal justices, but not a critical mass. And now there's a six to three conservative supermajority. And even conceding that Chief Justice Roberts is has a more gradualist approach and is probably a bit less conservative than the other five, they don't need him to win. So just want to talk about what that means. We'll talk about what that means potentially for the NCAA. But before we get there, what do you think that means in how the law might change in the coming years? And then really maybe what it means about the court as an institution. But, But let's start first with what do you see as the more sort of day-to-day or year-to-year legal impact of the show? Well, when Justice Ginsburg died last September and Justice Barrett was nominated within a matter of days and then pushed through in very quick time before the election, that meant there is the six to three super majority for conservatives. And usually in the first year, you're going to see you're not going to see them, everybody running for the goalposts. And this court, I think, is no different, although I would expect to see some very dramatic rulings in the area of church-state relations and maybe some others. We already saw Justice Kagan really rip the skin off of Justice Kavanaugh in a case in, involving Louisiana's 
law that allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts and whether or not it was retroactive. And I think that, you know, when you read the Kagan dissent in that case, she's always been a very strategic person about when she chooses to dissent and how she chooses to dissent. And the only other dissent that I think came close to this was her dissent in the, in the gerrymandering case. This time, it sort of was as if she was saying, no more Mrs. Nice Guy. Uh, I'm going to lose. I'm going to leave some tracks when I lose on your back. And as we're recording this, George Will added to those tracks on Justice Kavanaugh's back. So I think you may see some fairly stark differences, but you won't see them until next term. And we've already seen the court really signal that it's, it's about to re-enter the culture wars. It's accepted a major gun case for the first time in over a decade. It's accepted a case about abortion rights that allows the court, if not to reverse Roe versus Wade, to do all but reverse Roe versus Wade and to determine it can do anything it wants. It can, it can have a building block to reversing Roe. It can reverse Roe for all practical purposes, or it could, you know, it could actually reverse Roe. And do you think, and there's sort of two parts to this question, one, how does that impact the, the institutional integrity of the court? And, and then two, it's somewhat related, in terms of the, the tearing the skin off and, and Kagan's dissent, there's obviously, you can look back to Scalia's dissent, and I know you also had a relationship with, a uh, friendship with Scalia, but the, the Scalia-Ginsburg friendship, that even though they were on opposite sides of almost every issue, they were also very close. Is there some of that collegiality in the current court that doesn't there don't there aren't at least as any public examples of it. And I know it's different because the court has turned over so much recently. I, I, I don't think it's like the court in the 1940s where that where they were called later nine scorpions in a bottle. I don't think it's like that. Yeah. Because they literally some of them didn't speak to each other and and yelled at each other and conferenced a lot and right. stuff like that. I don't think that that happens. I think they still have cordial lunches, things like that. But breaking bread does not mean that you can necessarily bridge differences. And I think that the nature of the current Supreme Court conservative majority is such, and I I hesitate to use the word extreme, but it's very extreme in terms of what much more traditional conservatism was. The the nature of that majority and the fact that conservatives in the Republican Party and have for 40 years been champing at the bit to increasingly to reach this moment means that some of the gradualism that insulates a court from the kind of political back and forth and wild swings and loses it ensures that the court doesn't and ensures that the court does not lose respect for it as an institution. Some of that may be eroding. And that I think is really bad for the country. But I am a you know what they a lot of people would call Marxist centrist. So a lot of folks on the left and the right probably don't agree with me. Right. Right. On the left, they want to just add justices. Right. right. That would only ensure that the court eventually would be 50 people. You know, every time you had a change of of party or of heart by a, a chief executive and they got a chance to add justices. And this is something Justice Ginsburg said in one of the last interviews I did with her. It, it, it doesn't work very well when you think about it. 
and that would presumably just completely erode the confidence and the, and the trust in the, yeah. in the institution. Okay, so now shifting to the NCAA case and on the the idea that the, the conservatives are probably more conservative than they've been since perhaps the 1930s, and we're seeing this extremism in a sense. Um, so it makes it fairly predictable how some of the hot button cases right. are going to be decided. But the NCAA case, at least in my mind, is not one of those predictable cases yes. because it doesn't fall out on traditional conservative or, or liberal lines. Right. And as happens in a lot of sports cases, although not many have reached the Supreme Court, this becomes more about one's view of sports than it does about one's view of whether they're a liberal or a conservative. And I, I think we saw some of that come out in the oral argument. So I just want to start with a, a fairly fundamental, basic question. In the 1984 Board of Regents case, Justice Stevens, in ruling against the NCAA, wrote that the NCAA plays a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college. And there can be no question that it needs ample latitude to play that role. That was 37 years ago. We have a very different court. We also have a very different NCAA. We have a very different landscape of college sports. Is your sense that any of the justices view college sports with that same reverence? And we, we heard some of the justices talk about it during the oral argument, but to the extent that these, this case might be decided by how one views the NCAA, just like the Kurt Flood case was decided by how justices viewed Major League Baseball. Oh. We know Justice Thomas is a football fan. Justice Kavanaugh coaches his daughter's teams. Do you, Justice Sotomayor has written some sports opinions in the past. Do, do you have a sense, other than what we heard at the arguments, of, of where the justices fall in their view of sports and college sports in particular? I thought I was really struck by the fact that they really didn't like what they heard and what they read about college sports today and the enormous salaries and the paid to the coaches and the assistant coaches and the even the the coaches charged with your left arm. You know, <laughs> I don't remember what the example was, but it was something like that. Yeah. You know, relatively seemingly minor coaches. And then and the huge facilities and at enormous expense at the same time that other sports are suffering because of all the money spent on these, they clearly didn't like that. And I would say, you know, because in general, uh, I would, you know, on this court, uh, I have no idea whether Justice Barrett knows anything about sports at all, although she's from Indiana, so she probably knows about basketball. Um, but I, I can tell you that uh, Justice Sotomayor, as a district court judge, ended the baseball strike, essentially. And Justice Kagan is not ignorant about sports. Justice Ginsburg totally ignorant about sports, but these two women actually do know something about sports. But I was struck by all the conservative men who were really horrified by what they read in the briefs, not just the merits briefs, but the amicus briefs, the friend of the court briefs, right. about what art has become common practice. Whether they are willing to do anything about it is a different question. Right. And my sense at the end of it was that they were as puzzled about what to do with this problem as lots of people are 
uh, but that they have even fewer tools to deal with it. So I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. And I, I think they probably left that argument. I, was this was this the argument where where Kagan at the end said, I, I'm really not sure what you want, what these what the two sides want? That yeah, I mean that that came up, and there, there was a question I think directed to plaintiffs' counsel that yeah, what are you seeking? What are you asking the, mm-hmm. the court to do? But you're right. I mean, what struck me was Justice Kavanaugh, for example, saying that this seems like the schools are conspiring with competitors to pay no salaries to the workers mm-hmm. who are, are making the school billions of dollars, and there was a lot of that. And Justice Alito, I think, quoted from one of the Amicus briefs about how. Right the exploitation that was going on in college sports. Those weren't his words, but it was still striking that he read the mm-hmm. the argument like that. That there did seem to be a recognition on both sides, the conservatives and the and the liberals, that something's wrong mm-hmm. here and the something wrong is disproportionately affecting black men and women. But then there was the flip side to it, the the idea of the reverence that even Justice Sotomayor said, how do we know that we're not destroying the game as it exists Right. if we give these athletes more rights? But what was amazing to me about all of it, maybe not amazing, was there was very little discussion of actual antitrust. Yeah, well, that's what I would say. This is an antitrust case. And I mean, that may be their best refuge is to say this is a conspiracy in restraint of trade. And, and I think what Jeff Kessler would say and his team would say is that these bad things may happen to college sports and, and it may hurt the product, but that's what every antitrust defendant has said since the since 1890, that if you apply antitrust law, it will destroy our product and destroy our industry. And that's never been a winning argument. And it should, there should be no exception here for the NCAA. But again, conservatives and liberals seem to say, but this is something so special and important. <laughs> we just had a, a small visitor in the background. Yeah, that was visitor that was, from another planet. <laughs> yes, she, she was about eight. Four. Four. Four, four about four. to be five. Really yeah. teeny. <laughs> yeah. So that this concern that there's something wonderful and special about college sports and applying antitrust law to it might destroy it, and it, it, you just don't typically hear that type of talk in any other industry. Again, it, it just may come down to how much they want to defer to the, this thing we love in college sports. But, I, but again, as you said, I'm not sure how many of the justices actually love college sports. They might be aware of it, but are they are they afraid of destroying it? Like the Supreme Court was afraid of destroying baseball back in the, in the 70s. I, I, I don't know. And I guess we'll find out. You mentioned at the top that you're a sports fan and you've obviously followed this case like all other cases in front of the Supreme Court, very closely. Do you share the justices' views about the exploitation in college sports? But there is a corrupting influence of the amount of money involved. That isn't legal corruption. That's just character corruption. Right. And then you're, then you're making judgments for young people that exploit them because it serves your monetary purposes. And if you believe all the things the NCAA says about the value of amateurism and the value of sport, then money shouldn't be the main and the first reason. It's clearly corrupted their mission to the extent that their mission was is education. Yes. That this is prioritized. Look, everything. I don't I don't actually know 
how anybody can justify the basketball schedule goes from when to when? It goes from November to April. So <laughs> that is all but the very beginning and the very end of the academic year. So yep. most colleges end in early to mid-May, and they start in sometime in September, sometimes occasionally. But they have to be there in August. You know they have to be there in August for, for the beginning of training. And given the number, it's one thing when you play football and you train a lot, but it's one game a week, I think. Most until you get yeah, to the yeah, train. At most. But basketball, you pay, I don't know how many games you play a week, but multiple. You're on the road, for yeah. God's sakes. Yeah. This is it is a farm team for the NBA. And at some point, my practical sense you should says you should just say, admit that. And let the NBA pay for it. I think it's fair to say that the NCAA has had a number of public missteps over the last few months, including the gender equity issues at the NCAA tournament. Are any of the justices watching? Are they paying attention to say, this is not an organization we need to defer to? I somehow doubt it. I mean, I was only vaguely aware of myself. Let me ask you, I, I know you're not necessarily a fan of predicting how these cases will come out. And there was a, a thing called, but it was Courtcast, which I guess no longer exists. That was an algorithm to try to predict just based mm-hmm. on the argument, how the case would be decided. And you gave some great quote about why are we people spending so much time on trying to figure out how a case is going to be decided. We'll find out the answer in two weeks. Just, just wait. Exactly right. And it's really dangerous. It may be a little bit easier to do than it was when I first started covering the court when I, I think the justices were not so wedded to particular philosophies. However, you remember that there were people who walked out on the steps of the United States Supreme Court after the Affordable Care Act argument, the Obamacare argument, and said Obamacare is dead. And I felt a bit a fool, but I said, I, you know, I agree that it was hard to count five votes, but it was not impossible to count five votes. And I just don't like to predict these cases. And in this case, where they they actually know so little about the, the product, as it were, right. and where they are at the same time so appalled by the way the product is generated and played, maybe the easiest thing is just to defer to the the decision of the lower court. But I don't, I have no idea. I agree. I have no idea how the case is going to come out. And you could seem like you could find five votes very easily on the other side because it's just, who knows what, what they're thinking and why they're thinking it um, and what the basis for it would be. And is it fair to say that the COVID format for oral argument makes it even, in my sense, it was harder, even harder to predict just because yeah. of the format, that there wasn't the free-for-all and you didn't get the constant interruption because it was so right. orderly. It was so orderly. It's so. It's also longer because there's no way you can fit this format into an hour. It's almost always an hour and 45 minutes at least. Right. And so it, it doesn't work well. And you can't see them. You can't see if somebody, you know, if they were actually sitting together you might see somebody lean over and whisper something to another justice. Uh, none of that is happening, much less seen. So it just is, it's really, I, I, I think, very difficult. Here she is. Here she is. Sorry, 
I, I just, hi, I, I know this hi. is not exactly professional, but this is my wife and my daughter. Hi, and, so hi. Hi. Me too. <laughs> and who is the, the smaller one of the two? Yes, she's, she's a little nervous and shy. So what's oh, your name? I'm very excited to see your dad. Yeah, her name is Maisie, and today was her last day of school. So. So like oh, yay! Yeah. <laughs> All right, Maisie, this is the Hi, woman who will be one of your role models. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, thank you so much. This is terrific. This is great fun. We'll have a chance to discuss the NCAA, and you'll be able to tell me what it actually means but in practice. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to my longtime sponsor, RipVest. You've studied cryptocurrency. You've studied Bitcoin. Now it's time to study Ripvest. See you all next time between the lines. And here we have stuff that holds the stuff. Well, 